Okay, uh, welcome to Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. I'm Matt. I'm Hillary. And this is our first episode, proper episode. Last week we did the introduction of uh, Ken Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy. Yep. This week we're starting with part one, Festival Night of uh, Red Mars. And just as a reminder, our idea here is that this is a read-along podcast. Yeah. In other words, uh, we'll all read uh, these amazing books uh, section by section, and then Matt and I will have a conversation, and our conversation will stand in for the thoughts that everyone else is having. Yeah. The thoughts that we're having are the ones that you're having. Exactly. We're pumping them directly (laughs) into your ears, especially if you're using earbuds. So it's working out great for everybody. Um, but yeah, you should read along. If you're not reading along, then, you know, spoiler alert. Yeah, um, we're going to we're we're gonna gonna, ruin the book. We're going to talk about the plot. <laughs> um, so you should read it, uh, them. So last week we, we ended by reading the opening sort of italicized part of part one. Each of the parts begins with an italicized section that is kind of a little bit more impressionistic than the novel proper. Right, right. Um, and it ended, this italicized part ended with this line, it, um, it, Mars, had been a power, now it became a place. Which I think is such a great, like, um, and that idea, so this, the italicized part seems to be giving us the, this sense of, like, Mars's like, symbolic importance. Right. Right? And then this, also this sense that human beings have gradually come to know more and more about it, right? So we get this kind of, like, there's a sense in the italicized part of some kind of, like, progressive knowledge, right, from, like, you know, imagining Mars as mythical to imagining, to first seeing Mars through the telescope, imagining it as the place of the canals, this kind of space for speculation, and then... um, you know, with the Mariner and Voyager probes actually beginning to have some concrete or empirical sense of what the planet is. And then we end with the idea of it becoming a place, uh, which I just think is like a beautiful kind of way to begin a novel, right? Like, what are we supposed to think that that means? Mm-hmm. You know, now it's a place. Well, and all of this comes in a what turns out to be a, a political speech. I mean, if it's not already obvious by the right. rhetoric... Uh, used in the in that italicized part um, that this is a speech um, then it becomes very evident uh, in the neck when you turn the page and uh, the speech concludes maybe I'll just read that opening paragraph the speech concludes with you know it begins with this paragraph begins with quotation marks which the italicized part did not right, have right. Um, sort of anchoring it into this speech space it says and so we came here but what they didn't realize was that by the time we got to Mars, we would be so changed by the voyage out that nothing we had been told to do mattered anymore. It wasn't like submarining or settling the Wild West. It was an entirely new experience. And as the flight of the Ares went on, the Earth finally became so distant that it was nothing but a blue star among all the others, its voices so delayed that they seemed to come from a previous century. We were on our own, and so we became fundamentally different beings. Such a great uh, opening, and then the next line is Frank thinking it's all lies. Yeah. So what it turns out is the the speech has been given by John Boone, who is like the, he's like Neil Armstrong times John Wayne plus plus like Uncle Sam or something. I mean, like he's just the all-American, corn-fed, blonde uh, happy-go-lucky hero. Hero, right? And among the listeners in this speech is this guy Frank Chalmers, 
from whose perspective part one is told. And Frank Chalmers is both John Boone's basically like his best friend, but he also hates his guts. Right. Like all best friends. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, I really, so it's been, um, I haven't read these books for a while, so it's exciting to start rereading them again. And I kind of am just doing it one section at a time, mm-hmm. even though in some ways I think for the podcast, maybe I should have read ahead. No, but whatever. I, I'm I just, think I'm, it's good because I've, I just finished reading all of them for the first time two months ago and you haven't read them in 10 years. So like that combination of like, I know what's going to happen, but I've also like I'm reading again for the second time, so everything is new to me or like fresh, in a, and I'm seeing it in a new light. And then you're seeing it like fresh through the rosy colored, rosy tinted <laughs> lenses of the past or whatever. So right, right. I, so I had, I mean, I think that this chapter, like, still, even though I sort of, you know, as I started re- rereading it, thought, okay, I know what happens in this section more or less. Um, I feel like this chapter is like such a, it really takes you unawares as the beginning of this book because like so many ideas get activated in that first speech. Um, and it, you know, again, like I think that that idea of what it means to say that like a planet has become a place, Mm -hmm. um, is really intriguing. And that then in, you know, John's speech goes on to say like, we became fundamentally different beings like, um, yeah, you know, there's this kind of, like, extraordinary, um, I don't know, it has, like, a utopian, there's this utopianism to it, yeah. right? Like, you know, we left Earth and we became totally different. And then immediately in the chapter, as soon as you are sort of, like, traveling along with Frank's consciousness, you're actually in a, in all of these overlapping terrains that feel not at all new, but yeah. really familiar. Like, you're in the political, right? Yeah. You know, in the terrain of, like, resentment between friends. Right. You know. And the romantic, um, the jilted lover. Right, right. Romantic disappointment. Um, suspicion. Yeah. Whereas John Boone's concluding remarks, we became fundamentally different beings is so, you know, you could read that from, you know, a Marxist perspective with like, yeah, you know, we finally, not only would you smash the material conditions of our being, but that changed us as well as human beings. Like the conditions right, of being right. human were completely changed by the materiality of, how, of that in which we lived. And Frank is like, no, it's all the same. It's the same bullshit that has been through... Um, all human history, basically. Right. And he very much sees everything as like a power structure, a power um, struggle. Right, right. Um, and what you go through in this chapter is this kind of, you know, I, I remember reading the first chapter being really taken in by it, but also super confused. And because um, the end of the chapter, as we'll get to the end of the part, ends with this like murder. Mm-hmm. And so it, you're in the realm of like a murder mystery in a way. Right, right. Political intrigue, murder mystery. And you also just from the very beginning, you get the kind of like this juxtaposition of, um, you know, Boone's speech, which since we now know it's like a political speech and it's for an occasion, right? Um, Maybe we as readers think then we're being cued to be suspicious of it. And we get opposed to that. We get Frank's kind of cynicism, Mm -hmm. which I think has this. It's not only like if Frank thinks, um, you know, Uh, He says, or we get from his perspective, um, 
the truth was the trip to Mars had been the functional equivalent of a long train ride. Not only had they not become fundamentally different beings, they had actually become more like themselves <laughs> than ever, stripped of habits until they were left with nothing but the naked raw material of their selves. And so I think it's like we get... Um, it's hard for you to position yourself as a reader. I mean, this is actually kind of like an alienating opening, yeah. you know. I mean, which is interesting because we think, like, the alienation should come from the fact that, like, we're on a different planet. Yeah. But instead it's like the alienation comes from, well, how are you supposed to position yourself in this kind of, like, you know, Boone's speech sounds a lot like a lot of kind of... Um, Whatever, either sort of like you know NASA propaganda, mm -hmm. right? Or or like um, not that there's anything wrong with NASA. I'm just saying. Or like you know like a certain kind of science fictional mode in which it's like we will stretch ourselves to the limits right. and become different than we ever could be, and then we get this kind of like cynical response, and the cynical response like makes this claim about human nature, right? You know, like fundamentally. Yeah. Fundamentally, you know, you put us into a new situation and we just become more like we yeah, are. Yeah, we're just right? going to reestablish the old patterns that are almost biologically hardwired. Um, uh, John, uh, we, we, the next few paragraphs, we hear the speech through Frank's ears as John concludes. And, um, you know, he says, Mars is sublime and exotic, a dangerous place. With our work, we are carving out a new social order and the next step in the human story, blah, blah, blah. Um, he, so then John brings up Frank and like, I love the names actually, <laughs> the immediate like introduction to the names, John Boone, like there's this, I mean, John, what could be more American than right, that? Right, right. And then Boone, like the Daniel Boone sort of reference. And then Frank Chalmers, just, I picture Frank Chalmers as... Dr. Poole, Frank Poole from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because <laughs> he is described as like tall and dusky or like yeah, right. swarthy. Swarthy, my class um, swarthy. And sort of uh, calculating, right? Um, but uh, John introduces Frank as his old friend. And what's interesting is then now it's Frank's turn to make a speech. And he, fought, he finds himself saying roughly the same things yeah, that right. John says. Right. Even though he doesn't believe in any of it, it's kind of like you're put in a structural position where you are speaking to a group of a thousand people and you can't help but be idealistic or some, right, somehow. Right, right, right. Even though he doesn't believe it. Right. Well, and we have this great thing that I, I... One of the things I really like about this is that we don't... So we get the kind of... We get this account of Mars in the John Boone speech, which is the, like, you know, how how it looked through the telescope right. and all of this kind of imagining of it. Um, but we don't... Like, we're... The, the book really delays showing us Mars, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, yeah. we actually are not totally sure what kind of space they're in. All right, so they're in the new city. That's what this festival is commemorating. Um and the other thing that I think I really like in this chapter is Frank keeps thinking back to how they started this whole, pro, uh, you know, this whole um, whatever project begins with just 100 people. Right. Um, and here we have the sense of being in this, like, bustling, crazy city space that has become very urban um, in which, like, we have these, like, you know, um, culture clashes that Frank, for his own reasons, is kind of, like, magnifying. Mm -hmm. Um but there are only 5,000 people there, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, that is... But when it's when Frank looks down into the crowd. He gets up there to talk, right? And he's been, like, cynical about what John says. And he looks into the crowd, and, he, and it's like, there are so many people there, right? Yeah. And you have this sense of, like, the kind of... 
there's this kind of shock of something new, and the shock is just like being among a lot of people. Yeah. But there are only five thousand people in mm-hmm. the city, right? Right. Yeah. So it's like not actually this vast number of mm-hmm. people, and all of this I think is like a really I don't know I think there's a really interesting thing that's going on here because like you as the reader are used to the scene in which you meet like you know some central characters early on in the book. Um, but it's stranger to have them have these bonds to each other, um, but to then also feel themselves to be among strangers. Anyway, uh-huh. So I think my thought there is like, you know, you, the reader, feel like you're among strangers because you're trying to figure out what's going on. Right. But Maya, Frank, and John also have a sense of being among strangers because they still have this model of their lives on Mars in which there are only 100 people there yeah. and, like, things have grown. Yeah, right? yeah. And suddenly they're thrust in these new positions. But they, there, there are details about the city that we're, we're getting, that there are skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. Um, they are standing in the open air, so they're not wearing spacesuits. Right, right. They're under a tent. Um. And later on, we'll get more of a sense of kind of how this is possible, that there's this sort of basically, they're under a bubble. Yeah. They're in this like plastic thing that also generates electricity. So we don't know what year this is at all. Right, right. We don't know how long they've been on Mars, anything like that. But we do get this, we do understand that is a kind of, I guess it's a far future or a near future. What is is the definition of this? But, But still that... They have we they have technology that we can kind of only dream of right now. Right. Um, right. Or we know. I mean, the technology they have seems to be what I think like material. You know, more advanced materials, materials science yeah. than we have. Piezo right? electric plastic. An outer membrane of this is on page eight. An outer membrane of piezoelectric plastic. We 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 happen upon a Swiss man happily describing how the bubble right. works. <laughs> useful. It's useful for a visitor to a new planet to have someone who's explaining it. Piezoelectric plastic generates electricity from wind. Then two sheets hold a layer of air gel insulation. Then the inner layer is a radiation capturing membrane which turns purple and must be replaced. More clear than a window, isn't it? So I, that makes perfect sense. This is like one of my. I I like the. Um, like trying to imagine uh, what this kind of space is like and the yeah. way in which it's both like indoors and outdoors mm-hmm. and it's like a city, but also it's a city covered by something. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something I just... It's even like though, the Truman Show. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> like the Truman Show. <laughs> even though, I feel like even though it's often, I mean, like we can see the sort of, the idea that you'd have the city under the bubble, right? Which I feel like right. appears in all kinds of yeah. like science fictional things. Right. And, you know, um, it's still such a strange thought that you would like live in a place where your outdoor spaces were indoors Mm -hmm. spaces. You know, like I find that very like, and here we get the idea that like the, the advance is partly is not only that the, they can like distribute electricity through the plastic, but also that, you know, you in effect don't see it. So you have the feeling of being outside. Right. But I love on that same page, um, you know, Frank and he's like, so just like angry and cynical, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and he's thinking about John and Maya, and so we get this, like, jealousy, uh, you know, jealousy that they seem to have some kind of relationship, although we don't know what that is, jealousy that they're deciding the fate of Mars, and he, guess, wishes that he was, and in fact, you know, this chapter is about him deciding the fate of Mars, mm-hmm. uh, or trying to. Um, he poked the tent wall so hard he pushed out the outermost membrane, which meant that some of his anger would be captured and stored as electricity in the yeah. town's grid. I just love that. It's amazing. I love yeah. that. I feel like there's a lot of, I was just, I was thinking like there's a lot of cool stuff in here about like, um, uh, 
even though you would not think that this was a novel that was like interested in things like embodiment and feeling, mm-hmm. I feel like there are some really interesting things about like, you know, um, yeah, like the idea that like your feelings kind of radiate off yeah. of you and make things happen. And we get that materialized in that idea of him like kind of communicating with the yeah. tent. And in actually that way. the descriptions of just their their physical sort of moving around and their facial expressions and stuff are very uh, evocative for that. Um, they, they, you know, he's gritting his molars. You get the sense that people are, you know, that a lot of communication in the book happens not through speech, but through body language right. and stuff. Right. There's right. also the, the paragraph <clears throat> before that, he, when he actually reaches out and pushes at the inner membrane, it's stretched until his fingers were buried to the knuckles. Slightly cool. It's cool that he's on Mars and that it's cool. <laughs> um, there was faint white lettering printed on the plastic. Isidus planitia polymers. So we're still in a world that has branding. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the branding is like over everything. It's actually... The, actually, the air that they are protected by is branded. Yeah, somehow, yeah, right, right, right. right. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Right. Um, so he's furious because John and Maya, uh, Maya Toitovna, I think. Nice. Right? Yeah. Russian. Um, yeah. Uh, are kind of, they're kind of the stars of the show, and they have been dominating kind of Martian politics or something. Uh and but we still don't really get a sense of why he's actually no. so pissed. No, I mean we have these kind of like hints at it. Um but also I mean I think that one of the things that happens in the chapter is like it goes from you feeling like, okay, I mean, I don't know how to assess Frank exactly, but he's he's angry, it seems like he's resentful, right? Mm-hmm. Resentiment seems to be like his kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um but then the actions that he takes over the course of the chapter speak to something that isn't just anger, but is actually like political yeah. political calculation of some yeah. kind, right? So he has this whole like Machiavellian mode. Um which is weird. I mean, I guess that that kind of goes along with his idea that like, you know, you know, we get this kind of, you know, he wants to condemn Boone as an idealist. How could we be something new? Um, we get some sense that, like, Boone's claims that, like, you know, human beings became new when they came to Mars. I mean, maybe we're not supposed to, like... Believe it. Totally believe yeah. that, right? But, like, Frank's opposition to that is this, like, a little bit, like, kind of a sort of quasi-evolutionary claim about mm-hmm. human nature, right? We have this, like, basic nature that's always going to come out, Right. right. Um, but also this whole Machiavellian thing, like you can manipulate other people by like understanding the way in which power works, right? And that's the, it's like, that's the sort of game that he's yeah. going to play. I remember really clearly, actually, the first time I read this, having a moment of um, like, he gets, so the next thing that happens in the chapter after he's he's like, you know, angrily like walking through the streets um, is he goes to a plaza and sees a group of Arabs there who he goes over to talk to. And that's his, like, that's how he describes them. Um, he mm-hmm. describes them as clustered in a plaza like mussels on a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a group of Arabs drinking coffee. A group of Arabs drinking coffee. So there's and still th- coffee in the future. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and also there's still, like, you know, people hanging out in plazas drinking coffee, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I remember reading this the first time and having this moment in which I was like, there are Arabs on Mars? Mm-hmm. And then I thought, oh my God, that was just like a yeah. crazily like racist thought that yeah. I had. Um, but it like, um, there is some there is something in this moment here in which like, I mean, and you know, we talked a little bit last time about like the kind of like the 90s right. uh, moment of the novel's production, right? So like it's written like, 
you know, whatever. I think this is a few years before Samuel Huntington wrote Clash of Civilizations. Mm. But definitely, like, in the kind of moment of beginning to produce for Americans the uh, this sort of specter of, like, you know, an Arab-slash-Muslim world out to get us in right. some kind of way. Um, and I think it's, like, that's an intense thing to me about this chapter that, like, for the for the reader, like, let's just pause it here, like, for, like, the white reader, some of that stuff, like, gets activated, yeah. like, right? In a yeah. way in a way that is, like, effort. And then the other thing I thought, as I recall the first time I read this, um, you know, both, like, my own sort of reaction of, like, what? Isn't that weird? Yeah. Uh, and then secondarily thinking like, ooh, am I not going to like this book? I mean, <laughs> when I read it, I didn't know anything about Robinson. I had no right. idea like what this was going to be about. Right. And it is weird to be plunged into a book about Mars, um, plunged into this political intrigue and also like political intrigue that resonates so clearly with not just the, like, 90s historical moment, but our own yeah. historical moment, right? right? Um, and it becomes pretty rapidly clear that, like, Frank is there to sow dissension, mm-hmm. to try to convince um, try to convince the Arab community that John Boone doesn't respect them, that he is just, like, this sort of American supremacist, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in turn to convince, like, the various um, non-Arab populations that the Arabs don't right. really want to be there and they want to take over and make yeah. it theirs, right? I mean, so we get, so we enter into this like crazy political dynamic. Um, I don't know. I find that like really interesting he, here. He has a lot more, <clears throat> uh, he has a lot more sort of invested in making the Arabs, uh, pitting the Arabs against John Boone than the Arabs have in right. pitting. You know, they, right. many of them seem rather good natured about it. They're like, yeah, John Boone, he's kind of a jerk. Uh, we don't really believe all that stuff, and you know they're just sort of trying to get along. There is one that he kind of activates as like a he almost like a, he's created a terrorist sleeper cell of one person, right? Whose right. name is Salim, who he really um, capitalizes on that guy's res- on Salim's resentment. But it's interesting too because in that first paragraph, when we're introduced to the Arabs, um, it's ex- it's explained too that um, a lot of the words that are being adopted on Mars to ex- to describe landscape are from Arabic yeah, yeah. because they have a lot more words to describe desert. Yeah. And so there is a deeply cultural aspect of living on Mars that is being borrowed from uh, Arabic. It's not simply that dominated by the Americans and the Russians, which is also interesting. John and Maya form this American uh, Russian alliance, but then Frank is somehow on the outside of that, right, even right. though he's American. So the allegiances, the so geopolitical allegiances on earth are not simply being transposed onto uh, Mars, but they're actually being reconfigured and reshuffled in unpredictable ways. There's also these this like Swiss contingent right. that we haven't really right. uh, figured out yet. Right, exactly. Who speak? Uh, you know, I feel yeah. Well, I think one of the clever things the chapter does is like first you see the population of Arab men, and we get kind of Frank's perspective on them. But then also he speaks Arabic, right? So there's yeah. you know like there's something there that's not exactly what we think. Um, uh, but you kind of have the, the idea that, like, this is the marked out population. And then he runs into this population, this group of, like, Swiss women mm-hmm. who are speaking, like, a Swiss dialect that's described as, oh, like, yeah. um, uh, oh, the, yeah, this is on 13. The um, 
a Swiss dialect called Swiss Schweizerdeutsch. Uh, a dialect never written down, a private code, incomprehensible even to Germans. It was another impenetrable culture, the Swiss, in some ways, even more so than the Arabs. Right. So we you know, yeah. there there's something here in which like, okay, so the beginning, John Boone is like, we're all new. We come to Mars and we're all new. Um, and I think we're beginning to put together as readers at this point that like there was an initial group of colonists, the first one hundred, and now more people are arriving, mm-hmm. right? Well, the Arabs have been there for 10 years. But the Arabs, have, right, the Arabs have been there so for a while. The, yeah. the Swiss seem to be newer, although I'm not positive about that. But in any case, like, we get the, you know, John says we're all new, as if, like, you know, we come here and we all become the same, right? Frank is like, that's not true. Like, we all come here and we just are reduced to, like, the most basic human nature, which seems, if we take what Frank does as the example of that, mm-hmm. according to him, then basic human nature is being, like, cynical, right. you know. Power hungry. Power hungry, yeah. instrumentally rational, yeah. right? You know, like, all of those things. Um, uh, but then... Now we we see, like, we also begin to see culture, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and we yeah. begin to see the idea of, like, distinctive cultures um, that, that you know, like, uh, you know, have their own private codes, right, that mean something else. And, like, culture becomes another kind of level of analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Both, like, Frank and John seem to ignore the idea that there could be cultural specificity, yeah. right? Even though Frank is, like, here, like, trying to, like, make trouble specifically on cultural slash political terms, yeah. like... Neither one of them seems to think that culture is a thing. Yeah. But then in the actual lives, like when we first, the first uh, glimpse we have of the city, which is called Nicosia? Nicosia. The first glimpse we have of the city, um, Frank describes it as like Parisian looking and says like Parisian, but like the colors are like a Fauvist painting. Mm -hmm. So like the wild, so all Mars does is kind of give a wild color to this like basically like European seeming city. But then we learn that like um, in the part of the city where the Arabs live, but also apparently where everybody hangs out, like they've built a Medina, you know, and and there's a kind of insistence that like you don't have a city that just has like straight lines and boulevards, right? right? A part of city life is something else. yeah, part of city life is finding places to hide yeah, and yeah. get lost um, so that you can discover new things um, or just hide. Yeah, right, or, um, just, hide. It's or just hide. Like, it's important that a city has an underground, like some kind of underbelly where that can hide from official culture. Right, Because right. you can't have everything out in the open. Right, right, like, exactly. Like, that's part of human nature, too, is that we have hidden ideas, thoughts, and dreams, right, or whatever. Right, right, right. Which totally makes me think of um, two, like, two novels mm-hmm. that I think we both, maybe have both read, that seem to me to, like, Don't be Don't bet on it. This here. is the first book I've ever read. Well, I, right. Oh, that's right. But maybe you've heard, <laughs> maybe you've heard about this. <laughs> One is Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, yes. right? Which is about this, like, communitarian anarchist society, in part. But, like, there's a description there of, like, the main city on Anaris. Yeah. Um, in which, um... The description of the city emphasizes its transparency, Mm. right? This kind of, like, beautiful transparency. But then we also see in that city that there are places where people are, like, making stuff and that are crowded Mm. and that don't have this sense of, like, openness and transparency to them. And I kind of think there's some reference in that. Um, And also in Samuel Delaney's Triton, um, which is his kind of... Uh, sort of utopian novel. We also have a city under a dome uh-huh. and, a, and an idea of like urban life 
in which like everybody knows everything about everybody, right? And there's kind of like, you know, everybody can see everything. Mm -hmm. But in that city, there's also the unlicensed sector, mm -hmm. right? And the idea there is like there has to be a place in a city yeah. where there isn't law or where there aren't rules. Mm -hmm. um, so like, yeah, and I think there's some of that here too, right? We get that idea of the city under the dome and like that calling it like Paris is like saying like the boulevards and, you know, you see how it's laid out. And yeah. then we get these ideas, I think not in sinister ways, but actually in this, you know, this idea that like, yeah, people, people need like yeah. other kinds of es spaces. Escape. Right. Escape from the, from the glaring, you know, publicness. Or and like complexity, like right? Yeah. You know, like the, yeah. the mess of streets rather than like the tidally laid out yeah. streets. I think just going, uh, flashing back a, a minute just to recontextualize this whole scene in part one, festival night, that this is the, mm. the, in it, this is the celebratory, you know, night of the completion of the city. Right, It's right. a new city. So in a certain way, like to borrow a Western metaphor, it's like a barn raising or something. Right, right, right. It's commemorating the formation of a new community in a new place. And so after he kind of leaves, after he leaves the Arabs and he has a, a, a brief one-on-one -on -one with Salim, who, uh, who is the most, who has the most resentment toward John Boone and the Americans, um, we, he sort of returns to the crowd and we get a sense of truly what this festival is. That people are wearing basically Mardi Gras masks right, right. and running around sort of drunk and having a great time. Um, that's when he, he sort of runs into the uh, women speaking the French dialect. Um, he picks up a mask at some point, I think. And um, kind of starts, at that point, I think he starts running around uh, sowing havoc. Yeah, yes. That in is this exactly really weird and, un, like, I was not expecting this to happen. He basically finds a construction, I mean, I don't know if I'm skipping too far ahead, but he finds a construction site. Um, and maybe I'm skipping too far ahead. Well, the first thing he does is he goes out to the farm, right? So here, right. and he, this is another moment when, like, we're beginning to get the world laid out for us, right? So, okay, so there's the city, and then mm. the place where all of the food production goes on is outside of the city under um, another kind of tent. But we get to see that. Um, we get to see these things about, like, how they're actually living because Frank is, like... Clearly, at this point, we just know that like he's he up is no minimally stirring up trouble, but mm -hmm. he's actually doing much more than stirring up trouble, right? So like, he puts on um, uh, he puts on a suit to walk over to the farm, and then when he goes to the farm, he takes like um, oh yeah some kinds of um, pesticide patches. Um, and puts them into the pocket of the walker that he's wearing, and he also takes some like scissors, right? Mm -hmm. um, He's told Salim that he's going to talk to John Boone one more time, right, and see if what he can do. But at but at the same time, he goes to the farm. He gets these pesticide patches that I think it says that he knew the right combination for for them to be lethal. Yes, right. Yes. Um, I didn't remember the part about getting some scissors. He gets scissors and he scratches. Um, it says when he comes back into the city. Um, this is on 15, he scratched into a few plastic windows in Arabic yeah. lettering, oh, right. Jew, 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 Jew. Right. He walked on whistling through his teeth. So we have this kind of like, um, you know, he's setting up this kind of like Kristallnacht, Kristallnacht level, yeah, exactly. right? I mean, like there's nothing here. So we have the kind of contrast between like 
Frank carrying poison is in his pocket, like making it, you know, whatever. He's like stirring up racialized trouble here. Um, and yet, like, everybody is partying, like, their kids running around, like, um, mustached men dressed as American cheerleaders flounced expertly through a complicated can, t- can <laughs> routine. Right, so we're, like, in carnival, carnival but also total, this whole yeah. this uh, whole thing is going on. And when he meets with, when he meets with Salim, um, I think I did not get this the first time hmm. I read this, but he, when he meets with Salim, he puts the, the pesticide yeah. patches onto the Well, that's this, like the second time he meets with him. I right, think. the second time he meets so with him. So at this point, he goes up to John, and John is full of good cheer, it seems like. Hey, Frank, you look like you're having a good time. I am, Frank said through the mask. I love cities like this, don't you? A mixed species flock. Yeah, right. Like people are sheep to him. Right, right. right. It shows you what a diverse collection of cultures Mars is. John's smile was easy. His eyes shifted as he surveyed the boulevard below. Um, You know, a place like this is a crimp in your plan, isn't it? Frank says to John. Uh, And Boone says, I don't have a plan. So, you know, he, it's hard to tell what, either of these people are thinking. Yeah, yes. Um, and I don't know, because Frank is so calculating. We know that. But John remains this kind of mystery yeah. person yep. in a lot of ways. I mean, he is so uh, transparent throughout the, the the novels in a certain way. But you never get a sense that you... I mean, for me, I'm always <laughs> curious as to whether his transparency is real or right, not. Right, um, right. I mean... You know, obviously we'll talk about this next time when we, in the next chapter, when we start seeing everybody's relationships Mm -hmm. forming at the beginning. But it is, I do think there's a kind of way in which John, um, he is this like American hero type. um, He's the first man on Mars, by the way. First man on Mars, right. He's been to Mars before. We learn that later on. He is this American hero type. And that type here in the novel turns out to be act- to have a kind of unreadability to mm-hmm. it, right? And it's not clear whether the unreadability is like a kind of vacuousness right? or whether it's like being a true believer uh-huh. or whether it is a kind of political calculation in which you just like go along with whatever you need to go along with. And in this moment, he says, Omaya wrote the speech, right? right? Um, and like, again, I mean, and, and Frank thinks um, even after all these years, it was almost like talking to a stranger. Yeah. Um, and this whole chapter, like we get the this reiteration of the idea. So like... We begin the chapter with Boone's speech and the idea that Mars is becoming a place. Um, everybody will be new. Frank looks at the crowd and he sees strangers. We have all of these ideas about, like, miscommunication. Mm-hmm. And so here I think there's another... And, and then his old supposed friend, John Boone, remains a stranger to him. He's like, it's hard to interpret him. But is that part of... I mean, I so I really like John Boone. I mean, you're supposed to. And I wonder if his... If Frank's inability to interpret John Boone is Frank's problem and not John's problem. You know what I mean? Because right. Frank is constantly trying to f- figure out what people's angles are. And John Boone might just be a person without angles who actually believes like, no, everybody can get... Well, maybe he's a person who actually just doesn't understand what ideology is. John Boone is a person who's like so full of common sense. Like right. if you look at like how... <laughs> well, you know, Well, I mean common sense yeah. in the sense that like, well, no, everybody can get a... What? No. Right. Why, why are you being mean to me? Kind of like that right, thing. Right, right. Um, come on, John, Frank snapped. You believe all that? 
and you know it. But what are you going to do with all these different nationalities, all the ethnic hatreds, the religious manias? Your coalition can't possibly keep a thumb on all this. You can't keep Mars for yourselves, John. It's not a scientific station anymore. You're not going to get a treaty that makes it one. We're not trying to. Then what, you know, so Frank sees this division among people as like natural, as irreparable, yeah. as yeah. the condition that people are in. And John is much more optimistic in terms of like, we can get set aside these differences for a greater good of right. like harmony and peace and human living together. Right, right. Well, and I think, yeah, there, I think there are a couple of things that are interesting there. Like one is like that idea that Frank claims that what he sees is what just what human nature is, right? right? But then he also is the one who's like acting mm-hmm. in order to like, you know, essentially produce like a set of like ethnic slash racial slash religious hatreds that are going to like work in his favor here, right? Yeah. So like is, so is it the case that he actually believes that this is human nature and like what his kind of like plotting does just fosters what human nature is, Mm -hmm. right? The other thing I was just thinking is there is this kind of like, you know, the two of them, you know, there's a kind of dialectic between the two of them, right? I mean, they're both Americans, like, when we get into the next section, like, and we have more of the Russian perspective, the Russians are constantly looking at the Americans and just being like, you are so American, yeah. you know? Um, but they're both Americans. They're both men. Um, they're both men who are, like, used to having a kind of, like, power, right? They're both men who think of themselves as being charismatic, yeah. right? We know that Frank, you know, understands yeah. that he is also charismatic. Part of their charisma is because they're attractive, Mm -hmm. right? And in different ways, right? So there's a kind of like relationship between the two of them of like John seems to stand in for a kind of idealism, Mm -hmm. but we wonder if the reverse of that idealism is just like, I don't know, like a kind of thoughtlessness or naivete, right? Something like that. Frank stands in for cynicism, right? Um, But that cynicism, you know, like the rage of his cynicism I don't know, there's a way in which you can feel like it has a kind of, like, core to it, mm-hmm. that, like, John's, like, kind of genial, like, blonde Minnesota yeah. boy <laughs> qualities don't have, right? Um, and then here, I think, you know, we know very little about Maya in this chapter, right. right? We see her, we see her standing with the mask on. Frank thinks about how he could rescue her. I mean, rescue her, whoa. Frank thinks about how he could identify her, like, regardless of the fact that she's wearing a mask, the, hun- the first hundred can always identify each other because they spent so much time together. So even if they're wearing a mask and, like, 100 yards away, they recognize each other's body shapes, way they move, everything like that. Which is such a fantastic, right? Because I do think this thing, like, this idea about being among strangers. Yeah. Like, if you think, oh... We all go to, you know, a hundred of us go to another planet together, and when we arrive on that other planet, we become new beings. Well, we would then become strangers to each other, right? Because how would we know each other if we were all new? I mean, I think that's a kind of... um, But then Frank sees the strangeness also in, like, the cultural differences that Mm -hmm. he thinks that he can play with. Um, then we have everybody is wearing masks, mm-hmm. right? But Frank like looks at John and thinks like you're still a stranger to me, despite the fact that they and Maya is a stranger to him, despite the fact that they all know each other for, intimately. Yeah, decades for probably. decades, right? And you know, so this is a weird. I don't know. There's like something really interesting here about the idea that like they are a community, they are attached to each other in these ways that like. They have this incredible knowledge of each other, and it feels alienating to have other people come in because their knowledge of each other is so intimate, Yeah. right? But at the same time, like, you know, they can still think, like, I don't know you at all, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. 
I can't understand what's inside yeah. of you. And they're best friends. And they're best friends, who, right. And, and, but it also, in this section, it comes out that they, the two of them have not been able to talk about Maya with each other in years, or they haven't talked to each other about Maya in years. So right, that Maya right. is this, you know, is between them somehow. Um, and so there, I mean, we might also think we're getting like a kind of like a romantic triangle, yeah. right, that we might... I think that ultimately, like, it's not the, exactly what we think that it is, right? Yeah. But here we do kind of see it as though it were a sort of standard, like, narrative trope. It becomes triangle. hard. We'll talk about it in part two, but it becomes difficult to see it as a typical romantic triangle. So um, I want to take a break real quick. Okay. Um, and get some water. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, we're back. Um, that was... What a break. <laughs> so... Um, in the there are trees, yeah, right. There's like a whole forest of sycamores in the city. I mean, so there's the farm outside where they grow their plants, which is warmer mm. than the city. But then in the city, I mean, it's a real city. There's skyscrapers. There's trees. Yeah. There's a medina. There's yeah. uh, plazas. Um, it's just like it's, and they're not wearing spacesuits. Right. Um, right. And like we still, you know, here we are on Mars, and we still really haven't seen Mars. Right. We've gotten these glimpses yeah. of like color. You know, we have that idea that like Arabic has started providing a good, a better vocabulary for talking about Mars. So right. we know that it like requires like description and understanding, but we are kind of in a bubble in this first yeah. chapter. Yeah, literally. Um, so in the next section is when uh, Frank and Salim have another meeting where Frank says, "Okay, I've gone to talk to John Boone," and he, you know, he. He basically makes up, he's telling lies yeah, he, to Salim. Yes, he he's like, I've, do, I've done everything I can to convince John to, you know, uh, ease up on the treaty things to, basically it's about how many uh, people from Earth are going to be allowed to come to Mars mm. and how they're going to apportion those quotas uh, on a national basis. Right, right. And he's sowing this dissension among the Arabs that, uh, Boone is going to control it so that it's only basically Americans who are going to be able to come up right. and that they're going to severely limit anybody else. And the Arabs are balking at this for obvious reasons. Um, and Salim is the one who's most ang- angry about it. He's also probably, I think he's young. He's young, yeah. So it's easy to like kind of get him angry at stuff. Um, so they have this meeting in, under these trees, and this is when um, Frank brings out these uh, pesticide patches. Yeah. And gives him like a hug, slaps these pesticide patches that in the correct combination are going to be fatal within six hours. And then, so effectively poisons him at the same time that he sends him on it, essentially plants in the image in his mind of you are going to have to assassinate John Right, you're going to have to do something about this. And it's all done extremely subtly to the point where I had no idea what was going on when I first read it. It was very difficult to like parse out. Having read it the second time, it becomes much more obvious, but um, it's very devious. Well, and I think one of the reasons I think that I didn't pay attention to it the first time and was like so shocked by what happens at the end of the chapter um, was because I, I was still like, part of me was still reading Frank as like not somebody who would like, well, one, like, essentially, man, 
this is not the right word, manufacture an assassination, Mm -hmm. and two, like, you know, have this, like, I mean, it's an elaborate plot. Yeah. Like, he has an elaborate plot. There's a lot of moving parts. He's looking at his watch all the time, actually. Right, there's that great line about how, oh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, nearly 11, he had an appointment with Salim, another appointment. A lifetime of days divided into quarter hours made him used to running from one appointment to the next, changing masks, dealing with crisis after crisis, managing, manipulating, doing business in a hectic rush that never ended. It's such a, like... um, uh, so here they are on Mars, but he's still living on the clock, right? Politi- he's, yeah. You know, yeah. like he's a political man. I yeah, mean, it right, is really right. like uh, it is really calculating and devious, um, and viewing your life as a constant series of power plays, basically, right? Meetings right. and like that you're going to win or lose, right? And things like and that, that that's run by the clock. I think is really interesting yeah. because, like, in a little bit, we get to the right. great idea about time on Mars mm-hmm. being different than time on Earth, um, but. Uh, Salim, so Salim, in the gloom, the white of his this is on eighteen. The white of it, the whites of his eyes were bright. He has to be stopped. Frank turned aside, leaned against a tree. I don't know. You said it yourself. Talk means nothing. Frank circled the tree, feeling dizzy. You fool, he thought. Talk means everything. We are nothing but information exchange. Yeah, talk right. is all we have. He came on Salim again and said, "How? The planet. It is our way." The city gates are locked tonight. That stopped him. His hand started to twist. Frank said, but the gate to the farm is still open. But the farm's outer gates will be locked. Frank shrugged. Let him figure it out. Uh, and quickly enough, Salim blinked and said, ah, then he was gone. So it's just planting seeds yeah, right. that people can sort of pick up on and activate themselves. No orders are given. No plans are made. Right. Everything is innuendo. And um, I love, first of all, Salim's way of uh, doing this is the planet. Right. He's going to use the planet to right. do it. Right. And then secondly, um, Frank, uh, we are nothing but information exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk is all we have. So, like, humans exist through mediation, like, in a certain way. Like, there's no... You know, where, like Margaret Thatcher would say, there's no society, there are only individuals. Frank would say, there's only society. Right, right. But then here he also, like, this is an interesting, like, I feel like this is a kind of, like, classic sort of um, version of what political manipulation is, right? Because, like, he's the one who knows how important talk is, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But in order to, like, make talk be important, he's got to get Salim... Not only does he have to convince Salim to go kill John Boone, but also he has to kill Salim, right? right. I mean, you know, and he has to convince Salim that it's Salim's idea, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but so they're so they're like you know that idea that all we are is talk, but he has to take not just action, but like extraordinarily violent action, mm-hmm. right? Um, that that section also we get this one like great little glimpse as like um, Frank is putting like fragments of brick in his oh, yeah. pockets right because like you know there's going to be a riot and Frank is going to make sure it's a riot. Um, straightening up, he noticed someone watching him from the other side of the construction site. A little man with a thin face under spiky black dreadlocks watching him intently. Something in the look was disconcerting, it's on 17, as if the stranger saw through all his masks and was observing him so closely, he was aware of his thoughts, his plans. And that's just like a glimpse we get. Yeah, that's, yeah, that'll play out next week on next week's episode. A little bit and then get more and more developed. But that, you know, reading it 
again the second time, knowing who that is. So excited. Yeah, I love I, yeah, I love, <laughs> because I love that here. Reading it again and reading through the next two novels uh, forward, things will I mean, I'm excited at how they will become different to me because the knowledge of what happens in the next 10 pages is hidden from most characters in the right. book. Um, everybody knows a little piece of it because they all experience it. And, and throughout the trilogy, more and more of that information becomes crystallized. But right now we're, we're such in a position of... Because Frank is ping-ponging back and forth between these conversations with Frank... I mean, Frank with John, Frank with Salim, Frank with now Maya coming up. Right, right. So you get this sense of this person as radically divided. I mean, he's angry with John, but they have like this long-term friendship. He's angry with Maya, but they have something between them as well. And then he's utterly manipulative of Salim. So that like his own internal subjectivity, you never really get a sense of it solidifying around anything. Right. Because he reacts to these people in so many different ways. When he 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 runs into Maya again and she's wearing a mask, but he recognizes her her she he recognizes her regardless of all of that. Uh, the first hundred, the little band, this is on the bottom of 18, they were the only ones truly alive to him anymore. The rest mm-hmm. were ghosts. Mm-hmm. Frank hurried toward her, tripping over uneven ground. He squeezed a rock buried deep in one coat pocket, thinking, come on, you bitch, say something to save him. Say something that will make me run the length of the city to save mm-hmm. him. Right, right. The die is cast already. He has this intense relationship. I mean, hatred, love, whatever it is with Maya um, and with John. Right. He he's divided among himself in terms of what he, you know, what he actually wants to do, his own intentionality, um, which makes him so hard to read and understand what's going on. Well, it's also I think that line about like I mean, still through this chapter, like we don't really I mean we don't really know who the first one hundred are. I mean, we mm-hmm. have some like some vague right. kind of understanding of that, but we don't know that exactly. And that line about it, the first one hundred are what matters mm-hmm. um the little band they were the only ones truly alive the rest were ghosts which is a really weird i mean so that partly is a way of saying like so everybody else who's come to mars since the first hundred of us are negligible to yeah. him um but it's weird to think of them as ghosts right mm-hmm. so like that means like you know already dead so partly that suggests expendability but yeah. partly that suggests like they don't like whatever for frank it means to like be alive is to be involved with that little band of people who first arrived. Right. Um, so then that becomes like weirder if we think like this whole thing, he's playing out a political game here. Right. And at the very end of the chapter, he says, now, now, now we'll see what I can do with this planet. right? Right. Okay. So it's a power struggle. Right. But then like, why is the power, if it's a power struggle, if you're trying to get political power, right, by like assassinating one charismatic leader, by stirring up like, uh, you know, race hatred among people, like, isn't the power that you want over everybody, right? Mm-hmm. But but what he, but the only people who are alive to him are those first 100, mm-hmm. right? So there's something here in which we're getting like this like really intense kind of mixing of like sort of the personal and the political or of like claims about what it is to be a person or to be a human, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the idea of like actually this network of like close relations that we don't really understand, yeah. like, right, this kind of like intimate group of 100. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like what what is really like motivating him here yeah. feels like a kind of question. He 
this exchange with Maya that ends where she doesn't convince him to, she doesn't say something to save him. Um, he, he angrily, Frank circled her, stood on her path. That time on the Aries, he said, his voice was tight and he twisted his neck to loosen his throat to make speech easier. What happened, Maya? What happened? She shrugged and did not meet his gaze. For a long time, she did not speak. Then she looked at him. The spur of the moment, she said. They have this like weird mm-hmm. romantic history that we'll get into in the next part. But that seems or also... Un- unromantic history. Maybe. Unromantic. I mean, it's just like, which seems already now, but when we actually find out what it was, seems totally out of proportion to what Frank, what like Frank's response to it. But then also Frank's response to it seems out of character for the person that we're seeing right. do, performing all these machinations right. and bending Salim to his will to murder, to assassinate his best friend right. in order to get power. I mean, it's like... All the, does all of this hinge on like a jilted love story, right. or is that also made up? Right. Is he also performing for Maya? Right. Does he even know what he's who he's performing right. for? Right. I mean, I, right. I find him a really like uh, weird, like complex character. I think my uh, my favorite moment in this chapter, among all of the other things that I really like, is that so he. Uh, you know, he makes this like, you know, angry, like, why did you reject mm-hmm. me? We can assume that's what the demand yeah. is, right? You know, what happened, Maya? And she says the spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing that happens mm-hmm. is, and then it was ringing midnight and they, and they were in the Martian time slip, the 39 and a half minute gap between 12 and 12 and one second when the clocks went blank or stopped moving. This was how the first hundred had decided to reconcile Mars's slightly longer day with the 24 hour clock and the solution had proved oddly satisfactory. Every night, to step for a while out of the flicking numbers, out of the remorseless sweep of the second hand. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like, so we get this, she says the spur of the moment, mm-hmm. right? Something that happened on the spur of the moment, which is like a, whatever, is figurative language, right? And then we get this idea about like, okay, so the problem is that the Martian day is... Um, 39 and is longer than Earth, and since they still have a relationship to Earth, figuring out how to like keep time calculations the same necessitated the decision, the Martian time slip, which is of course the title of another book, oh, um, by Philip K. Dick uh, about Mars, um, uh, which seems not irrelevant here. But so that decision, right, which you know you might think of as like this practical decision, but turns out to produce a time every day when you are off the clock, yeah. right? And since we've learned that like Frank is like constantly on the <laughs> clock, right? Um, so yeah, I just I think that's this really beautiful moment of yeah. like if we've thought if we if we think that there are all these questions in here about newness and strangeness, the first, you know, we think of those as kind of spatial questions, questions about spatial relations. Mm -hmm. And here we get this, like this idea of a kind of like temporal newness. Yeah. Like how weird would it be? This is just like a great moment of like, you know, how weird would it be if like your desire to be off the clock or like, um, was an actual thing. Like there was actually a time when the clocks are off. Right. I mean like, what it you know like that yeah. seems like um, you know it would be trivial and yet like that's also like a kind of amazing idea. I didn't think about this uh, the first time I read it either, but in this conversation, I mean, like the assassination of John Boone is therefore taking place off the clock, right? You know, right. once you know that the the moment when you know the schedule stops when Frank's divided up into fifteen minutes meetings per day every you know that the outsideness is where the 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 primal wound happens, right? right? right. This um, Cain and Abel 
uh, right. story, which is like literalized. I think he, you know, I think Kim Stanley Robinson evokes the land of Nod uh, right at the end. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but basically, what happens is a uh, fight breaks out in a certain part of the city, so sort of chaos starts erupting, and the whole time Frank has actually been breaking windows, um, scratching Jew into windows, right. throwing bricks and rocks down on people from an elevated position, um, uh, sort of sometimes being witnessed, sometimes not. He's kind of in this carnival aspect, a carnival atmosphere. He's running through the town like a kind of, uh, like a Loki god or yeah, something. Yeah, right. <laughs> like sowing, sowing mischief. Um, and then uh, all to kind of create the distraction necessary so that uh, the assassination of John Boone can happen, right, right. which we get only in sort of images because other people, of course, Frank has uh, not proximate to that, to those events at all. Right. Other people kind of witness it in, in uh, blurs. Sax Russell sees some of it. Um, and, but by the time they, and sort of Frank leads them through different places where he knows that John is not going to be. He takes them to different gates uh, that he knows were not the ones used to take right, Frank out right. uh, of the city into the harsh Martian uh, exterior. Um, and then when they finally do find him in the farm, like among the rutabagas or something like that, right? The radishes. The radishes. Yeah. That was close. Yeah. Um, An arvage. Uh, he is, he's got his jacket over his head in kind of a, a emergency um tactic to to create like an oxygen pocket right, or something right. but it's too late he's been out there for too long maya um is kind of be- beside herself so even though we don't actually know john and maya's relationship uh the depths of it yet mm-hmm. um she's clearly the one who's most upset about it um telling the doctors to keep working on him um frank this whole time is in his internal Self and his external self are completely divided. He's acting one way, feeling another way, right, and trying right. to reconcile his outward appearance with what is expected of him to be feeling at this moment. Um, uh, Maya put her hand on Frank's shoulder and he almost flinched. His throat clamped down to nothing. It really hurt. I'm sorry, he managed to say. I mean, he is feeling something. I mean, I think he is, you know, he's succeeded in what he wanted to do, but what he wanted to do, he's not all together on board with. Right, right, Um, right. She she shrugged the remark aside, frowned. She had something, she had had somewhat the air of the medical people. Well, she said, you never liked him much anyway. True, he said, thinking it would be politic to seem honest with her at that moment. But then he shuddered and said bitterly, what do you know about what I like or don't like? Right, right. Um, he felt hollow. Suddenly it seemed to him that everything good had gone away. Right, and then it's interesting that we get that line that you referred to. He walked through the strangely hushed darkness of the city into the land of Nod. The streets glinted as if stars had fallen on the pavement. Um, so it's, it's interesting that he, so he, leaves, he leaves the medical unit um, in this kind of weird state of hollowness, right? Feeling like he's, you know, clearly there's something, maybe not regret, but something like regret. Um, and he describes as walking into the land of Nod, so mm-hmm. like into fantasy dream space, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As he enters into the city, you know, like not into like the kind of like 
um, you know, calculated, like, realism of his, like, political positions, Mm -hmm. right? Well, isn't the Land of Nod from the Bible where Cain gets exiled after killing Abel? Oh, I don't know. I was thinking... You haven't read your Bible? (laughs) Uh, I haven't. Um, <laughs> I'm looking it up. Okay, look it up. But I'm I was thinking sure about, is. like, In the Land of Nod is, like, uh, you know, nighty-night time. It, like, yeah. dream time. I think it got, uh, yeah, um, on the east of Eden, where Cain was exiled by God after Cain yeah. had murdered his brother Abel. But it did get appropriate you as the land You have read of, a book. I've read a book. <laughs> the, uh, but it, it did get re-kind of, oh, there's a band called The Land of Nod, British post-rock band. Um, another word for sleep. Yeah. Right? Right. Um, which, I don't know if that just comes from, like, nodding off. Right, the land of uh, nod. Well, we could look that up later. But but it's but it's both. I mean, it's a dreamlike state, but it's also exile. Right. Uh, so yeah, that, right, And right. because this chapter is told through the lens of Frank, it gives us an insight into his perspective on his own actions, right. on what he's done. Right. But it also solidifies this kind of Edenic metaphor of these are the first people on Mars. Mm-hmm. There's not really an Adam and Eve, but there's certainly a Canaan and Abel. Right. Um, and that he is, and, and that it gives a sense that this is the original sin of Mars, the murder of John Boone. Right, right. So it's it's interesting. I was going to say, I feel like we should, I mean, we're we need winding down here, but I was just going to say there's one other thing to think about on 22, so right before that that last moment, mm. Frank, so after um, after the doctor says that John is dead, Frank leaned his head back against the wall. When Reinhold Messner returned from the first solo climb of Everest, he was severely mm. dehydrated and utterly exhausted. He fell down most of the last part of the descent and collapsed on the Rongbuk Glacier, and he was crawling over it on his hands and knees when the woman, who is his entire support team, reached him, and he looked up at her out of a delirium and said, where are all my friends? So it's a, you know, like, we don't, this is one of the moments, I think this is something that actually, like, is fairly subtle in the book. We don't know if this is Frank having this thought. We don't know how thoroughly, like, we're inside Frank's head here. Um, uh, so we don't know if this is Frank having the thought or if this is, like, a narrative moment. And we don't get that anecdote explained, but one of the things that we could think is, like, so in this moment of, like, he feels this wretchedness, he feels this abandonment because he has done this thing, um, the only way to, like, create a kind of, like, an explanation or to have this, like, telling kind of anecdote about, like, what it would mean to have done something and then feel that, you know, your world was completely changed, that you had no friends anymore, is to make this comparison to something that happens on Earth, yeah. right? You know, this, like, mm, yeah. right, climbing Everest, this oh, sort yeah. of extreme kind of, like, um, this extreme event on Earth, right? Yeah. So, like, here, you know, and, and there I think we get this idea of, right, so is this, like, the birth, uh, are we looking at the birth of Mars? What does it mean that Mars has become a place? Oh, yeah. What, what does it mean that we're all new if your reference points remain, like, stories from Earth, yeah. right? And, like, if, if you know, Frank says, oh, we got up here and, like, all of our old habits, all of the, like, customs that keep things under control are gone and we're just, like, raw human nature. But, like, the, you know, like, the stories are still there, yeah. right? And the comparison is still there. And, like, how do you perceive, like, newness, right? You perceive newness in comparison to something mm-hmm. else, right? Um, yeah, I just think that's, like, a really, I think that's a really kind of beautiful moment there. I mean, and that idea of, like, you know, um, 
not being able to recognize your friends, right? Because yeah. that's that's that image friends? of the climber coming off of Everest, and there is, you know, like his sole support is there, yeah. and he can't see her, right? Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. he can see through the delirium is that there are no friends. Yeah. So there's something about like an experience that you could go through that would make you a stranger to everybody that you knew, mm. also, yeah. right? Like yeah. some kind of radical alienation yeah. takes place. Yeah, and that that'll. That's a dynamic that'll play out many times throughout the course of the three novels, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. In different ways, with different characters. And then also what you were saying about memory of, you know, the memory, the structures that we uh, understand what happens to us um, are, are rooted in the past. And Frank and Maya and John and the first hundreds passes on Earth. Right. You know, by the time we get to Blue Mars... Uh, spoiler alert, where there are, you know, people who have been born and raised on Mars and have no memory of Earth. New humans. This will create a whole different set of conflicts and misunderstandings and inability to communicate. Right, right. um, Which is just so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But that'll be, like, December. Yeah. (laughs) What month is it now? It's March. Oh, Cool. It'll be a while. Yeah, it'll take us a while. It'll to take get us there. a while to get yeah. there. This is a long project. Yeah, guys. Um, I hope you're in for the long haul. So, with that, um, do we? What do we want to? Do we want to say anything about part two to preview preview it a little bit more? No, I th- I'd say like just uh, go ahead and read part two because it is uh, it's cool. It's a little bit longer than this part, and it does like a t- it does a lot of work. I mean, yeah. it's not just setting up characters. We get you know all of the like good spaceship stuff oh, that man. obviously we're in it for, um, and more of the first hundred, and more of the first hundred because the yeah. second part basically is a flashback. It's called the voyage out. Right. So essentially flashes back to when they were first heading out to Mars. And I would just say, um, since the first chapter is almost entirely about men, Mm. The Voyage Out is also the title of a Virginia Woolf novel. Oh. I think Virginia Woolf's first novel, which is about a young woman who takes a sea journey, I think, to South America. Mm. My memory of the details are hazy, but I but I think that like that I think that's a really deliberate reference, um, and we do like shift at least to some extent to thinking about to the point of view of a woman yeah. um, in the next section, which I think is a, is a, is not a move that one should take for granted in science fiction, yes, um, really at all, or yeah. s- especially of this yeah. kind. Yeah, yeah, cool. So cool. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and um, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Keep. Keep reading. Read on. Read on, (laughs) Martians. Bye. Bye.